I'm, de I'm delighted to be joined at the Global Peter Drucker Forum by Gary Hamill, recognised as one of the world's leading business strategy thinkers. Gary has a particular interest in the subject of innovation uh, practice. Uh, it's a pleasure to, to talk to you, Gary. The same. Um, Gary, you've described innovation in the past as the only protection against irrelevance and commoditization. Um, there's a recognition of how important this is, but also there's a McKinsey survey of CEOs which reveals that 94% think their organizations are not good at this. Why are so many organizations going wrong when it comes to innovation? You know, I, I think you have to go pretty deep uh, to get at that question because you're absolutely right. Every leader I know today will tell you how important this is. Um, they know it's the only guarantee of long-term customer loyalty. Um, they know it's the only way to uh, uh, renew your lease on success. Uh, and yet, organizations struggle. And I think the reason is that at the very core of every organization, we, we, we still have a bureaucratic management model hmm. uh, in which power trickles down and big leaders appoint little leaders and resource allocation decisions are made at the top. And the dilemma is, in those organizations, uh, any innovative project has to get signed off by someone at the top. And often, I have to say, those individuals have a lot of their emotional equity invested in the past. They built the old business model. Uh, they often feel compelled to defend decisions that they made a decade ago or more. They don't live particularly close to the bleeding edge of technology. They may not be uh, every day in touch with customers, and yet they are called to arbitrate where and how the company uh, innovates, and I think that's a fundamental problem. So I think if you really want to build a deeply innovative uh, organization, there are many things you can do, but ultimately you do have to confront kind of the bureaucratic heritage that we have. You know, bureaucracy was, was built for a very simple reason, and, and Max Weber talked about this more than 100 years ago. He said that you know, bureaucracy is better than any other organizational form as a mechanism for, for ensuring control. And, you know, if you go back 150 years ago or 100 years ago, people are trying to figure out how do you make cars, how do you deliver reliable train service, whatever it was. Control was and is a very, very important uh, organizational virtue. But today in our, in, in, in our companies, we have all kinds of mechanisms for control. We have KPIs and we have review meetings and, 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 and project reports and so on. But we have very little that positively supports curiosity and, and creativity and experimentation and prototyping. So as a, whatever the rhetoric, as a, a corporate system or as a corporate priority, innovation is still outgunned hmm. by just the mechanisms of operational control. Sure, sure. We also have other surveys showing that levels of engagement and employee engagement are continuing to decline over the years. Do you, do you think there's a link between lack of engagement and lack of innovative practice? Sure. I mean, I think uh, uh, that human beings, by, by nature, we are inventive and creative. We cannot help ourselves. I mean, uh, you know, anybody you talk to has some creative activity in their life, and maybe they're redecorating their house, they're laying out a garden, maybe they're you know, editing their digital photos, whatever it is. But often at work, there's very little opportunity uh, for, for that creative impulse to take root. Um, we, we, we did a, a survey with the Harvard Business Review of uh, more than 10,000 managers and, and, and leaders around the world, and 76% of them told us that, that in their organizations, new ideas are greeted with skepticism or outright hostility. Mm -hmm. So, um, yes, I mean, 
if, if this is the deepest part of our humanity, if this is what makes you feel alive, is the ability to do something new, to, to see your creativity flourish, and you're in an organization where that doesn't happen, I'll, I'll give you a wonderful little case study in this. So um, you might recall uh, that um, about a year and a half ago, United Airlines, uh, the, the large U.S. air carrier, went through an awful PR disaster mm. where uh, they had uh, some airport security people drag a passenger off an airplane and in the process he was bloodied and kind of beaten up mm. um, because the flight was oversold and they needed to make space for some United pilots to uh, deadhead to another city where they had to uh, uh, take over a flight. Mm. And so the airline did a, a review, as you would after all of this, and they concluded that the staff there at the gate had, did not have the authority or the autonomy they needed to solve that problem in a creative way. They had a certain set of policies. You could offer so much to uh, entice a, a passenger off the flight, but no more. Yeah. And they said people needed more, 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 more. Uh, so they were uh, following the rule book. They were not, following the not, rule book. Not the big picture. Uh, but what really makes the story poignant, but also quite sad, is that um, a few weeks later, the, the, the chief executive, Oscar Munas, of, of the airline was interviewed, uh, I believe, on television. And, and, and the interviewer said, so what do, you, what do you take of this whole experience? And he said, well, and I'll, I'll, I'll get the quote almost exactly. You can probably look it up. But mm -hmm. he said, what we learned is that we didn't have the rules and policies and guidelines in place that would allow people to exercise their judgment. Now, if that is not the most ironic thing possible, you know, I mean, and, 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 yet, and yet we are so steeped in that kind of bureaucratic mindset. And, and I think many leaders, it is, it is literally a scary thought to understand that the success of your organization depends fundamentally on the capacity of people every day to use their judgment. Hmm. Okay. I was talking to... Um, Jim Schnob uh, is his name. He was the co-CEO of, of SAP, the German software company, and now mm -hmm. uh, he's uh, non-executive chairman of Maersk, the large Danish shipping company. Mm -hmm. and, and, and he told me that when he left SAP, the company had 50,000 KPIs, right? Like measures, wow. metrics, holding people accountable to the minute for every action. Mm -hmm. Well, you can't put people in that kind of a straitjacket and by the way, he wasn't bragging, let me be clear. He, was, he said that with a lot of kind of uh, uh, embarrassment in a way. Yeah, yeah. But you can't put people in that kind of a straitjacket and expect innovation to flourish. Mm -hmm. um, so, mm -hmm. yes, these things are absolutely correlated. You take away somebody's capacity to imagine, to dream, to create, mm -hmm. you're not going to have a very uh, engaged or happy person at work. And, and, and equally, you're going to be using only a fraction of, of their intellectual uh, horsepower. Mm. And so they're there physically, but they're not there with, with uh, their creativity and their imagination and their passion. Okay, so what are the key tips, Gary, for baking innovation into the, into the organization's DNA? Two things primarily, neither of which are easy, but they're, they're certainly doable. And they're no more difficult than many other things companies have done. One is we have to train everyone, and I mean everyone in an organization, to think like a business innovator. Mm -hmm. um, we often have this uh, kind of view that, um, you know, there's a few people who are just genetically gifted as innovators, Steve Jobs or Elon Musk or Richard Branson, but, but most of us aren't. Right. And it turns out that's not really true. Um, uh, there, there are a set of habits, there are a set of perspectives that innovators have 
that, that you can pass on. You can teach these things just like you can teach somebody how to swing a golf club, which is not an easy thing to do, but you can teach people how to do that. So teaching people, for example, how do you recognize uh, industry orthodoxy? How do you see what everyone in an industry is thinking the same way, making the same assumptions, and how do you challenge that in a smart kind of way? Teaching people how you get at the unarticulated needs of customers. What are the deep frustrations, anxieties that we're producing that we're not even aware of? You can teach people how to be observant and read emotional cues and start to see those, those uh, uh, needs. You can teach people how to be more in tune with what's changing in the world, the trends and technology and lifestyle, and to be constantly asking, well, if we harnessed that trend, what would we need to do differently? So we've done this in many organizations around the world. It's created billions of dollars of market value. But it's, it's amazing to me how many CEOs will say, Gary, we're really serious about innovation here. And if I ask them, so how many of your people, right down to uh, administrative assistants, uh, store clerks, uh, people in the co- how many of these people have you trained to think like business innovators? Well, we haven't done that. So that for me is number one. The, the second thing is, we have to re-engineer our management models to make them innovation friendly. And what do I mean in that way? So if you think of the last uh, couple of decades, every company in the world has re-engineered its operating model for speed and agility. So they've been working with, you know, pick your vendor, Oracle or Amazon Web Services or IBM or whatever. This enormous investment in back office, in optimizing our supply chains, all to you know, ring a bit more, more, more cost out of, of, of the operating model. I think now we need to re-engineer the management model for innovation, and that means looking at every management process we have. How do we hire? How do we compensate? How do we allocate resources? How do we plan? And in every one of those processes, you want to ask, what here frustrates innovation? Let me give you a typical example. I was working a few years ago, this turns quite a few years ago now, probably six or seven years ago, in a large Korean company. And we had trained a lot of young people how to think like uh, business innovators, and we had given them some time to generate new business ideas. One team comes back with an idea based on using, using your smartphone and based on geolocation and, and, and uh, social media data that would have allowed you to be in a, a pub or somewhere else to see people around you that you might like to meet, and if you wanted to meet up, you could tap something and make a physical introduction. Hmm. So this is a team of kids. They're early 20s. In this company, the the resource decision on whether to go ahead or not was made by a team where the average age was mid-50s. So we take this idea up. I thought it was a killer idea. And the first question we got from this senior group was, uh, first of all, if you're off to the pub, why are you on your smartphone? (laughs) Isn't that rude? Well, it's been a long time since those people were in a pub. And, of course, what kids are doing is sharing what's on their smartphones, right? You look at something, you share it. Second question was, and why would you want to meet a stranger? Like, why would you leave your friends and go meet a stranger? Welcome to Tinder. And, of course, you know, your friends are going to encourage you, and they're going to enjoy the spectacle of whatever happens. So oh, yeah. it's entertainment for all. Yes. Anyway, needless to say, the project didn't get funded, and uh, about six months later, Tinder got funded. So, so looking at every one of those processes, I, for example, I believe that innovation needs to be the single largest component of executive compensation. 
I believe every leader at every level needs innovation metrics. How many ideas are being generated in my team? What's the quality of those ideas? How quickly do those ideas uh, uh, make it into the pipeline? Um, uh, so again, there's nothing particularly magical about this, but it's recognizing that if you want an innovative organization, you have to build a different set of principles into your DNA. You need, you need things that make it easy for people to experiment and get small amounts of, of resources to get something going. You need to hold people accountable for innovation like we hold them accountable for everything else. So, it's, it's, you know, I, I'm not sure I can give you a very good explanation. I certainly have a hypothesis. Hmm. But the reality is, despite being, you know, uh, serious about innovation, very few companies have trained people how to think that way. They don't make it easy for people to get uh, uh, money or to get something started. There's no internal equivalent of Kickstarter or Indiegogo that allows you to get a bit of experimental funding. And for the most part, we don't hold leaders accountable for it. So now when a CEO says we're serious, I ask them those questions. Have you trained people? Is it easy? No, no, no. And um, I say, well, let's, let's start by understanding how you're using the word serious. Because if we haven't trained people, and you don't make it easy, and you don't hold people accountable, I'm not sure how serious you are. Mm. Okay, so there's a, there's a gap between the rhetoric and, and the actual There's an enormous the gap between practice. rhetoric and, yeah. and the real effort yeah. at building innovation as a core competence into the organization. Yeah, okay. I'm wondering if, as part of that, um, the financial markets may have something to do with it, with the kind of focus on quarterly earnings. It doesn't always help the innovative process, which oftentimes results in, you know, an investment and maybe a loss before we get to the profit. So how, how do you square that? You know, I, I'm a little bit sympathetic to that argument, but only a little. And, mm -hmm. and here's, here's my reservations. First of all, most startups are relatively poor. Mm -hmm. If you're telling me that in a large company that might be, have 100 million euros of revenue or 500 or a billion or maybe much more than that, if you can't find every year a few tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of, of euros to yeah. make some, some, then, you know, that's, that's, that's a problem. Um, so I don't think it's primarily a matter of, of money because most uh, startups are, they start with very little, um, that uh, they win by the quality of their ideas and the speed of execution, not because they are going to outspend the incumbents. That seldom right. happens. Yeah. Right. Second thing that's interesting to me is if you look at any stock exchange, mm -hmm. whether you look at um, the FTSE or the NYSE, whatever around the world, you will see some companies that have a price-earnings ratio on their stock of 8, 9, or 10 to 1, and you'll see some that are 30 and 40 and 50 to 1. So if investors were, were implacably short-term, you would never see a company with a high PE because by definition, I'm valuing the company in a way that, that doesn't reflect current earnings. I have some expectations of, of, of future growth in your earnings. Well, why would I expect that? Because as a company, you have a track record of organic growth. So for years, uh, Amazon has had a high PE. Now in the last you know, few months, they've taken a hit, but it was inevitable, they were overvalued. But nevertheless, year after year, you have this you know, vaunted PE, because year after year, this company's creating new businesses, things like Amazon Web Services, Amazon.prime, or Amazon Prime. So, again, 
I think investors are generally pretty wise. If I see a company that has no history of, of, of building new businesses, of entering new markets, uh, no history of strong organic growth, mm. and the CEOs are telling me I'm hamstrung by the investment community, I would say, let's test that proposition. Let's see if we can generate a few truly game-changing ideas. Let's, let's, let's be as creative as we can in experimenting on, with those at low cost. Let's find partnerships to give us, uh, uh, you know, to multiply our resources. And then let's see if it's really the investment community that's a problem or it's our own inability to, 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 to innovate and to grow that's the problem. A lot of organizations, Gary, at the moment are focused on, on digital transformation, probably should have been focused on this a long, long time mm. ago, but suddenly it's becoming really, really yeah, yeah, yeah. top of the agenda for the companies that I, I talk to. Do you think that digital transformation could have a, a, an effect on kind of the, the true radical um, adoption of, of innovation as opposed to this incremental innovation that's been going on? Sure. Um, so 20 years ago, next month, I wrote the first cover story for Fortune magazine in the United States on the web. Hmm. And one of the things I say, again, as, as, as close as I can remember this, this point, but I said the web is not, and remember 20 years ago, I said the web is not a new marketing channel, it's not a new advertising medium, it's the foundation for a new industrial revolution. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't particularly prescient, but you could see what was going to happen. You knew it was going to disintermediate a lot of sure. you know, people in the middle. You knew that it was going to radically empower customers. You knew that it was going to create micro-markets and, and, and disintegrate the mass market. You knew that it would enable peer-to-peer -peer production. All of this, anybody who thought about it for a while could see. Mm. So the fact that 20 years later, companies are getting serious about digital transformation... Mm. I would argue it has nothing to do with digital. In fact, digital is not a very complicated technology, by and large. Mm. Um, we wrap it up in a lot of mystique, mm -hmm. but you think of a company like uh, uh, um, Airbnb. Mm -hmm. uh, the last time I checked, it's probably changed, but Airbnb had 30 patents. Mm. IBM gets that many patents in a week. These, you know, no, no, nobody, these companies is going to win a Nobel Prize. Now, is there some really, really, really hard programming uh, in the autonomous driving features at Tesla? Yeah, I think there are, right? Some of that stuff is maybe you get close to Nobel Prize quality kinds of innovation. But most of the examples we, we throw around every day, it's not. So I think, I think the real problem is not digital, although you know, the, the problem comes clothed in, in kind of digital garb. The real problem is that most organizations are very poor at, 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 at adapting, very poor at changing. You have to hit them upside of the head with a very large stick before you shake loose the cobwebs of the old mental model. Yeah. Um, and, and what I can assure you is if companies see this as a digital problem rather than a speed of change problem, whatever the next trend discontinuity, they're going to be in the same position again. But it is ironic, it is ironic that it is hard if you look at any industry from hospitality to transportation to banking to retailing to publishing to music, it is hard to find a single case where an incumbent organization has been at the forefront of, of the digital revolution. Let, let me give you one reason why this is so difficult. Maybe the, the, the primary reason, it relates to something I said a moment ago. 
if you believe that companies need, quotes, a digital strategy, which they all do today, and if you also believe that strategy starts at the top, you have a real problem. Because digital technology is changing so fast that by the time a few people at the top understand it and its implications, you're already behind the curve. You know, classic, and, and by the way, this happens to really smart companies. If you think about uh, uh, Google um, and Facebook, uh, Google a leader in search, but at the beginning, Facebook was just search for people. How do I find people and how do I connect? Should have been an obvious uh, opportunity for Google. Of course it wasn't. And, and quite a few years later, Google tries to get into that business with Google Plus and fails. Uh, by any measure, I think objective measure, they failed. And um, you saw something similar happen at Apple, where having been a pioneer in digital music with iTunes, uh, Steve Jobs, for all of his brilliance, said, I don't think people uh, want, uh, sorry, Steve Jobs said, people want to own their music. They want to like download the file, have the property rights. What does ownership mean in a world of ban you know, limitless bandwidth? Mm. So I think the reason companies, the simplest reason companies miss the future is that, or start to go sideways, is in those top-down pyramidal organizations, a very small number of people at the top can hold the organization's capacity to change hostage to their own willingness to change. Mm. So what happens, what happens when the speed at which an entire organization can change is a function of the speed at which a few people at the top are willing to write off their own depreciating intellectual capital, right? That happened at Microsoft, mm -hmm. you know, it's happened in some ways in, in most large companies. And so, you know, I, I think the way you, you solve the digital problem and the change problem in general is you have to create an internal market for innovation where people have, have the ability to innovate in small ways, to challenge conventional wisdom, to get projects started, and where the role of, 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 of the CEO is not to be the strategist-in-chief. The role of the CEO is to create enough experimentation that you have odds of finding the future, and then, and then to get the right support behind those things. It's, it's telling that uh, Jeff Bezos at Amazon has said, my goal is to make Amazon the world's biggest laboratory. Nice. And he talks about how many times they've, uh, they've failed at things. Hmm. And, uh, and, and he said, we think, I think Amazon is the best place in the world to fail. And they fail at some pretty big things, like creating an Amazon phone. So that's, but that's a fundamental shift in the way leaders see themselves. Because you know, historically, if, if being a leader meant anything, it meant I have the vision you know, I have the headlights, I set the direction, but I can tell you it's just impossible for a small number of people to do that today in any consistent way. Sure. Okay. And just broadening it out for the, the last couple of questions, if you don't mind, Gary, you consult obviously with some of the leading organizations in the world. What are the big issues exercising the, the chief executives of, of the big companies that you, um, you see in terms of what they're looking at for, the next, for, for here and for the next five years? I think that's a, a very good question. I think some of them, and they don't know what to do with this problem, but I think some of the most far-sighted ones are really thinking about the future of capitalism. Mm -hmm. And they're thinking about what does it mean when so much uh, of, of the public has lost their trust in large institutions. Mm -hmm. Again, I don't think they have solutions here, but I think it's a very pressing problem. 
you know, if you think about it, uh, you can debate the legality. But, you know, in most respects, organizations are not people. They do not have any intrinsic human rights. Mm -hmm. And so the freedom you have as a, as, a, as a business to operate is something you must continually renegotiate with society at large. Mm -hmm. And if society no longer trusts you to, to act in their best interest, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. And it's a problem for political institutions as well. And we see the growth of populism across mm -hmm. Europe and around the world. Yeah. Behind that, I think, there, there's, there are many, many explanations, but I'll give you mine for what it's worth. Mm. One of the things we've seen, both um, uh, politically and in business, over the last 20 or 30 years, has been increasing centralization. So this is true within governments, where more and more power and authority has moved to Brussels or to Washington or wherever it may be. And um, ordinary citizens feel, rightly so, that they have less and less uh, voice, uh, that uh, they have less and less control over the, 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 the policies and the legislation that shape their lives. This is mostly what Brexit was about. Mm -hmm. um, the same thing is true in, in, in large corporations. Uh, despite all the talk about empowerment and, and engagement, the fact is that companies are, and, and we have the data to back this up, companies are substantially more centralized today than they were a decade ago. We know, for example, within Europe, if you ask um, employees in Europe, uh, how much freedom do you have to choose what you work on and how you do that work? That freedom has declined precipitously since the late 1990s. And so, um, uh, with with you know, with some understandable reasons, but 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 mostly, I, I think has been unhealthy. And so, you have a world in which people feel increasingly helpless uh, at work and in their lives as employees and in their lives as citizens. And uh, I think that is just the inevitable consequence of greater and greater concentration. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you think about it today, we have higher levels of industrial concentration than at any point in the last hundred years, whether it's airlines, banking. So we talk a lot about all these newcomers and the Ubers and the Airbnbs, but the fact is uh, large companies and have, have become larger. Uh, I can't speak for Ireland, but I can tell you today in the United States, more than 30% of the workforce works in companies with more than 5,000 employees. Um, the number of, of, of startups is going down, not up. Um, if you take all of the uh, uh, um, all of the um, uh, the unicorns, these billion-dollar startups in the United States, their collective value is less than two percent of the S and P 500. So most organizations are stuck in the mud. They're big. They're getting bigger. They're consolidating primarily to gain even more political power. And when you have that kind of concentration of power in business and in government, I don't think that's good for democracy, and I don't think it's good for business, and I sure as hell don't believe it's good for human beings. Mm -hmm. So I think some leaders, are they don't understand where that anger and where that frustration is coming from, but they know it's a threat. Right, right. And speaking about democracy and, and, and political leaders, are you concerned about the current... Um Head of, head of your country, your, your president, in terms of his isolationist, um, somewhat um, self-interested uh, in terms of America, uh, rather than more holistic view of what is good for, for the world. Does that worry you? 
I think you have to be able to 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 look at both perspectives there. I do think that leaders are charged with uh, doing the right thing for their country. They have a responsibility to the people who elected them. Mm. Having said that, in a highly interdependent world, mm. you can't make a decision about what's good for you without being concerned with what's good for everyone else. And um, you know, you can't you can't resign from the rest of the world, much as some leaders might want to do that. Um, uh, so, you know, I have very mixed feelings about, uh, about uh, uh, the current president of the United States. Um, I think he is responding to something that the Democrats didn't see mm-hmm. or didn't care to respond to. Um, uh, Forty or fifty years ago, the Democratic Party was the party of, of, of the working class, and uh, that yes. ceased to be true about two decades ago. And so, again, you had a lot of, of, of displacement, a lot of anger, a lot of frustration that was going to come out somewhere, somehow. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, the fact that Donald Trump is president is a reflection of the inability of both political parties in the United States to deal with that productively. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you don't deal with it productively, sure. it will still find a, a, a valve, an escape valve. It will still come out mm-hmm. somehow. Yeah. And in many ways, this may be part of a kind of a global trend of, I think of, it is. of uh, movements that are emerging from dissatisfaction with the status quo and, and being let down. You're seeing it, for example, with the Labour Party in Britain and the Conservative Party in a different context altogether uh, as well. Well, and it's interesting yeah. that, that whether you're left or right today, we're confronting the same set of problems. You know, in the last U.S. election, Bernie Sanders mm. probably would have been the Democratic nominee without, you know, the political machinations of the Clintons. Mm. And in many ways, he was simply the obverse of, of Clinton. Yes. He was talking to a different... He was talking to young people mm-hmm. who do not see a future, yep. who are worried about their jobs, who are worried about uh, uh, um, living as well as their parents did. Mm. But it was, it was just a different group, but equally frustrated. And he offered a different set of policy prescriptions. Mm-hmm. So I think... And you know, Jeremy Corbyn in, in the UK and, and is Jeremy Corbyn, the same it's, thing. You know, it's yep. the same thing. And, yep. and, and, and the dilemma is that if we are not having thoughtful debates about what's really behind this, which mm-hmm. is the pace of change in our world and how interdependent things are and, 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 and growing uh, concentration and abuse of power, if we can't have honest, productive conversations about that, then you drive people to uh, political extremes. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a risk for sure, um, certainly all across uh, the Western world. Yeah. Okay. And, and finally, as we're here at the, the Drucker Forum, which has put uh, human humans centre uh, again, have you any interesting sort of perspectives that you're going to be bringing? Any kind of key messages that you're going to be delivering? You're talking tomorrow at the forum. I think my f- fundamental message is asking. My fundamental point is: let's be honest about why we're stuck. The topic of the forum here on how do we humanize organizations has exercised some of the greatest thinkers in management for nearly a hundred years. Elton Mayo, Fritz Roethlisberger, Edwards Deming, Warren Bennis. These are people who spent their whole careers asking how do we transform the world of work. Many of them did deep experiments in companies like ICI and Volvo, and General Motors trying to create more humane workplaces. And interestingly, their experiments 
more often than not, were extraordinarily successful. They saw productivity go up by 50 or 100%, and they saw employees' attitudes change, and yet here we are still talking about this problem. And I think the thing that we just missed and missed again is how deeply entrenched the bureaucratic model is and how well defended it is. You know, I've never met a, a CEO who claims to, 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 to be a friend of bureaucracy, but I've met very few who say, I, I have a plan to kill it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, the uh, leaders that's going to talk tomorrow with whom I'll share a platform, I know very well as a friend, is Zhang Rumin, who's the chairman and chief executive of the Chinese appliance maker Hire. Um, over the last few years, Hire took out 12,000 middle managers. They run a company today with 70,000 employees and three levels of management. People would have thought that's impossible. It's not impossible. Drucker predicted it. Many people have predicted it. But very few organizations have had the courage to do something about it. So what I want to say tomorrow is, listen, bureaucracy is no longer a cost we can afford. Um, If you look certainly across Europe and you see a decline in productivity over the last 20 years, that correlates perfectly with the growth in bureaucracy. In most economies today, we have twice as many bureaucrats in our work. These are managers, administrators, and whatever, than we did 30 years ago. I don't think they're adding very much value. I think they're mostly destroying value. And and it's a weed. It's like an invasive species that we just can't find in our hearts. What is driving this bureaucracy, Gary? Would you say, where is it coming from? Well... I think it's self-perpetuating in many ways. Um, first of all, it's, it's what, people in power are typically very good at getting more of it, and they have the means to do it. Mm. And if one of the things that makes me more powerful is having more headcount and having a bigger staff. Mm. And so every time a company runs into a new challenge, we create a new little mini bureaucracy. We have a chief experience officer, a chief learning officer, a chief marketing officer, chief whatever, and every one of those builds out a staff. And if you're gonna, you know, if, if you're gonna have power in an organization, you measure that power by your ability to create policy and to get people to conform and to comply. And so you see, uh, you know, the regulation just as it does politically, year after year after more. There's more, there are more internal rules, more regulation. There's no sunset clause there. It's just like a ratchet that keep keeps going up. Um, in, 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 in large companies today, companies with more than 5,000 people, the average front-level employee is buried under eight layers. Wow. Drucker, uh, back in the late 1980s, predicted that we would have half that number of layers now. So first, I think it's self-perpetuating just because, you know, bureaucracy is a multiplayer game. It's, you know, it's like World of Warcraft. And people who are good at it develop a certain set of skills. And one set of skills is, I'm going to make my organization bigger and have more headcount, and have a bigger budget, and more people reporting to me, and be able to create you know, more rules, more policies. So I think that's, that's one of the things that's, uh, that, that, that makes it so hard uh, uh, to kill. I think secondly, um, as the world has become more complex, it's a kind of a perverse response, but as the world has become more complex, and therefore less understandable, Mm-hmm. to any particular set of people in, in the organization. You know, we, you know we, knowledge is doubling every 18 months, so we're all becoming stupider faster in a way. So if I'm sitting at the top of a large, complicated organization, I literally, I feel more and more out of control every day. I'm waiting for some disaster, for something to come in at me from left field. 
one of the ways of dealing with that anxiety as a leader is to try to have more control. And, 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 and it doesn't help because um, the way you respond to complexity is with resilience, uh, not with more rigidity. But, but the first instinct is, if I have more information, if there are more rules, if we can you know, make sure that everybody's doing exactly, somehow I can manage this whole thing by remote control and, I, and I'm going to sleep better at night. So a lot of the increasing centralization and, and, and um, uh, standardization, I think, has come as leaders have tried to make the world understandable to them. Mm-hmm. And if I look across the organization, everybody's doing the same thing. We all, right? Like, okay, that must be okay. I mean, the number of times I hear a CEO say, we're trying to build, and they'll have the name of their company, we're trying to build one, and then put in the name of the company, one this, one that, one that. And the idea is that somehow, if we get enough harmonization, enough clarity, all the wood behind one arrow, then, you know, then I can rest easy at night knowing that everything is going as it should. It's a losing battle. You know, what, what we need is to take the analogy of life and say the way you... You, you know, the way life has survived for, 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 a, for a billion years is that it's constantly adapting and changing whatever the circumstance. So I think it's, it's primarily those two things. It's, it's, it's one, just the natural tendency of bureaucrats to create more bureaucracy, and it's a fear of complexity and a sense that if we can just, you know, get people to do exactly what they should and we can predict that and we can do that from the center, you know, then, then uh, maybe we're we can at least create the illusion that we have the tiger by the tail. Lovely. Gary, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you.